Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Law of the Gosh podcast. I'm here with Stephanie Tessier. Did am I pronouncing that correctly? That's perfect. You pronounce it. Uh, Stephanie Tessier. See, so much better. Uh, <laughs> Stephanie's from Canada, and she is an ex-Muslim. Uh, she was a convert, and she has a very enlightening and interesting story to tell us. And thank you for coming on my podcast, Stephanie. Uh, it's uh, it's my pleasure. It's an honor, actually. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, let's uh, start from the beginning right away. So where were you born? Uh, I was born in a small town called Gatineau, or Hull, in uh, Quebec, the province of Quebec in Canada. Uh, so Francophone province, incidentally. Um, so I was born there, you know, 30-some years ago. And your parents, were they religious at all? Uh, not overly. Both of my parents were not overly practicing Catholics. So I'm born Catholic. I was baptized. Um, but And I mean, my parents uh, did do a few of their own um, uh, rituals. Like they, they, they were baptized, both of them. And they, you know, they, they did some of them, but they didn't ask this from us. Uh, my siblings and I. So, um, no, I, I would say I grew up uh, from agnostic to just not practicing, depending on the, the moments. <clears throat> Where does uh, this story start with uh, with Islam? How did, how did you approach that religion? Uh, actually, it's uh, I, I had friends, uh, North African friends, uh, francophones also, and they had books about Islam. Like when I was 17, 18, I was friends with those girls and they had books about Islam in their, um, in their apartments. And that's how I introduced myself actually to Islam. I started to read uh, through their books, um, and found myself interested. Would you say they were rather conservative or were they more liberal kind of Muslims? Uh, I would have to say they were very liberal actually retrospectively, I think they were not very knowledgeable of Islam at all. The books that they had um, were their own books to read, and they were like beginner's books on Islam. So even though these girls were raised as Muslims, their level of knowledge of Islam, I would say, was pretty basic. Um, so they they were very not conservative. And actually, as I, I became more knowledgeable and eventually converted, um, they kind of stopped talking to me at some point. I think I, I took it too seriously for them. What appealed to you about Islam? Um, oddly enough, n not at all the, th the theology. Like, uh, you know, my parents not having put any kind of importance on God or religion as I was growing up, the, the theological part of Islam was always hard for me to to assimilate or to, you know, to get convinced and to believe in my heart, um, social structure and rigidity is what I was looking for. Actually, I, I definitely, I would say I went in because of the social, rigid social structures, um, interactions between different uh, people in the community, between men and women, between parents and their kids, between, um, so this is really, I think, what attracted me mostly. 
And how did the process work of you converting to Islam? Did you start going to mosque? Did you do the Shahada? Did you start making more Muslim friends? Um, I did. Uh, I just took Shahada in the in the like uh, Islamic uh, Information Center, actually in Ottawa, the city of Ottawa. Uh, so, as most of Muslims would know, this is not like it's a really short process. You just take the Shahada. It's like two, three sentences that you say in front of an Imam or something like this, and then you're officially a, a Muslim. So uh, that Islamic center uh, is where I picked up most of my first books on Islam, um, beginner's books and whatnot. They were mostly in English as opposed to French. And uh, this is where my studies began. And obviously, I did make more um, more and more practicing friends or, you know, I, I did meet more Muslims um, as time went by. Um, and then eventually I met the man who became my husband and got married. Did you meet him going to mosque? Oh my God, not at all. I met him um, in an arts gallery, oddly enough. I also want to know, is the kind of Islam you joined, was it Sunni Islam? Yes, yes. Uh, Sunni Islam is, Sunni, Sunni Islam is like the main really branch of Islam that's being practiced. So this is, I find that most people, when they convert, I guess they will have a tendency to, to just drift towards Sunni Islam unless, unless the people that they meet, whether it be like as a woman, it's a man that you're planning to marry or as a man, a woman that you're planning to marry or really close friends that are from other minority sects like uh, Ahmadiyya or uh, Shia, Unless you unless you learn about Islam through these sects, you're gonna convert to Sunni Islam. That's what I found. Because overwhelming majority, also they're very uh, invested in proselytizing around the world. Exactly. So when you go to mosques and things like this, all the the resources to which you have access, they, it's all Sunni Islam. Absolutely. Mm. And uh, your parents during this time, did your f uh, non-Muslim friends and your family, did, were they aware of what was going on? Um, they absolutely were. And uh, since, you know, in Canada, we live in a very, very sort of deeply ingrained uh, live and let live mentality. So my parents and siblings and closest friends and whatnot, whether retrospectively, I'm pretty sure they were not thrilled. They did not love it. The fact that I was converting to Islam and eventually met a man and got married and all that. Um, but because they don't feel I was an adult, they don't feel like they are they can, you know, tell me what to do or what not to do. Um, and then from then on, it's they love me. So they're just, you know, like they don't feel they can tell me what to do or what not to do. And they don't want to badger me about it it's not as if they're gonna sit every day and talk to me about the wrong decision that i made by you know embracing islam or something like this so what they did is basically they just stepped on their own concerns and took me as i am as i was and uh the husband you met like what age did you meet him how religious was he um i think i was 12 Oh, that's it's such a long time ago. I, I must have been 20 when I met him. He was 28. Um, we were neither of us. I was in the learning process. I was like learning how to pray and, uh, you know, learning bits and parts of the, the Quran and Arabic and all that. So 
and him, he was sort of in a spiritual, not so much religious kind of phase. So we were neither of us very religious when we met, which is probably why we were comfortable to 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 meet and to basically date um, before we were married. Um, but we did we did get Islamically married, and then we we became more practicing as time went on, and you know years of marriage passed, we became more practicing. But when we first met, we were not overly practicing, either one of us. And what was his uh, background in general? Because I know it's important to the rest of your story, the, his country of origin with his parents and all, all of that. Um, he's uh, Libyan, mm-hmm. from Libya. Yeah. And uh, he was born into a Muslim family. Yeah, born into a Muslim family um, in Libya, actually... Some people might uh, might get this, probably some won't, but he's uh, a Mazir. He's like Berber, native from North Africa, so from before the, the, the Arab conquests. Um, so he was born in a little village in the mountain and uh, with, you know, his, his tribe mostly all still lives there. Um, so he stayed there for 20, I believe he arrived in Canada when he was maybe 25, 26 and I met him maybe two years after he got to Canada. And uh, you you had children with him while you were still in Canada, correct? Yeah, I did. Um, in 2004, he decided to... Um, possibly, we, we must have been together maybe for three years at that point. So from 2001. Um, so he decided to uh, pursue a master's degree, to do a master's degree in Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, in Canada, central Canada. So um, we were married and I was already a few weeks pregnant with my eldest daughter. So I just basically followed him there and uh, we had both of our daughters in Saskatchewan. And did he ever become more religious or did you become more religious at any point? Uh, We did. We did. Upon uh, arriving in Saskatchewan, actually Saskatchewan, I found, has a a small uh, but very tight-knit community, it seemed, seemed to me, and not very cultural, but very Islamic, meaning that people do mix between cultures a lot, uh, which in bigger cities, sometimes, even as a practicing Muslim, you'll be, you'll be more surrounded by people of the same background, right? Same birth country than you or something like this. Um, it was not the case in Saskatchewan. People were very practicing, but not necessarily very cultural from their cultural backgrounds, um, or at least would like to think that they were not very cultural. And uh, so it was a big mix of people, big mix of people from all over the place. And I found it to be relatively practicing. So my husband and I in Saskatchewan is when we started to um, to study the deen, study the religion itself more. Um, everybody there, men and women, were taking halakas, like uh, study circles, and would be studying online and studying with teachers in Saskatchewan. There was one uh, woman, one woman in the community who actually learned, um, who who went to school in Al Azhar, like the best Islamic university probably on the planet in, in Egypt, Egypt, right? Yeah, yeah in yeah. Egypt, exactly. And she studied there how to teach. Quran and how to teach memorizing, recitation, all that. So we had some pretty um, active and knowledgeable members there. So I found that, you know, my husband and I both joined a lot of study circles like this and uh, online programs and whatnot. And we became both of us, 
much, much more practicing in Saskatchewan than we had been in Ottawa before. And were you happy about this? Um, it's a cycle, right? Like for a while, for a while, for sure, I was. I, I was in a, in a phase where I was studying more and more and I wanted to be more and more practicing and so was my husband. Um, so I was definitely happy about this for a while and then, you know, eventually I wanted to to, to, to take a bit of distance from Isam, so I wasn't so happy then. But I mean, at first, for a good two two and a half years in Saskatchewan, I, yeah, I was happy. It was my choice to study more and to immerse myself and to, you know, uh, practice the knowledge I was gaining, to put it in practice in my, day, my daily life. Did you um, wear a um, hijab? I did. I did. Um, I, I wore hijab just a little bit before moving to Saskatchewan. Um, and I stayed in Saskatchewan for a little over four years, and I wore it there the whole time I was there. My, I wore hijab maybe seven, eight years in total in my life, or eight, nine. What was the experience like wearing hijab in in Canada? Um, it's it it was mixed. Um, keeping in mind that I wore hijab in Canada from maybe two thousand and three until two thousand and nine. So for it's it's almost 10 years ago. So things were not as they are right now. So what I can say is that definitely there was a bit of um there was some discrimination done toward like you know some discrimination towards me whether it be uh, at school or for job applications or whatnot like people were very put off with my hijab. And yet, on the other hand, I would say it was minimal. I still got hired at several jobs with non-Muslims, you know, running the place. I still got hired with my hijab and my big black dresses because I wasn't wearing like jeans and t-shirts. I was wearing actual abayas and all that. So they, um, like I, I still managed to get hired fairly easily in the end. Um, and I found, I mean, again, generally speaking, the mentality in Canada is live and let live. That's whether people agree with your lifestyle or not, mostly they won't really comment on it. So it wasn't wearing hijab in Canada, I would say, um, is not wasn't very difficult at all. Uh, I, I didn't find it very difficult. What, what, what was the atmosphere like among Muslims, though? Would they treat people like the women in hijab better than the women without? Um. It, how can I say this? Definitely, in a sense, yes. Uh, it depends who. I was lucky. The closest friends that I had, whether in Ottawa or in Saskatchewan, they would never be rude or demeaning to a woman who chose not to wear hijab. What they would do, however, and I'm aware that what they did do, they did out of love and concern. But nonetheless, it amounts almost as hassle like they they would every time a non wearing like a non-hijabi muslim girl would join us in our gatherings and this was even truer of saskatchewan than it was of ottawa um it's like all we would talk about is this as soon as the girl would join us a girl not wearing hijab this this became the main topic of conversation it's like we would spend the entire evening giving her books advice talking about it um, attempting to uh, to convince her to put it on, so I can't say that it, I can't say I've witnessed girls wearing hijab from amongst my friends. 
I don't know for their parents and their families and whatnot, but amongst my friends, I can't say that they were rejected or treated badly, but it became the main thing about them that we would be talking about would be the fact that they don't wear hijab and they should. So it was kind of a hassle for the for any girl who wasn't wearing a hijab to not wear it. Like they would just get pushed and pushed to... In the, under the yeah. pretense of like we care about you, so you should wear. Well, it and I, I, I don't know exactly. I don't know that it's a pretense. It felt pretty genuine to me. Like these mm. women genuinely loved the other women and were genuinely concerned about their their salvation later on in life. So I don't know that I would say under the pretense, but I mean the hassle was there nonetheless. Well, what um, what was the concern? Is it that they're going to be looked at by men? Is it that they're going to go to hell if they don't wear it? Like what? It, what is the is that they're not obeying God's, like Allah's direct orders. And if you, you claim to be a Muslim, you should strive to follow each and every one of his commands. If you don't, then I mean that there are always chances that you might go to hell. So I think the concern is not even about men looking at them so much as concern for the person's salvation later on. Were your daughters wearing hijab? Not at that point. My daughters um, were very young when we were in Saskatchewan. Um, they were born in 2005 and six. So by the time we left Saskatchewan, they were three and four. So they were not wearing hijab in Saskatchewan, no. When did they start wearing it? Uh, at eight years old. Is this still in Canada? No, that was in Libya. Oh, that was in Libya. So what was it like uh, for them growing up in, in Canada? Did they have a kind of Muslim education did they have? Um, as I said, they were very small, right? So no, they, they had an Islamic education from their father and I, um, you know, by example, as well as by teaching. So we would definitely put them videos and, and things, Islamic things on TV as much as we could, um, we would, uh, you know, make them listen to like nasheed instead of music, um, trying to make them listen to Quran and recitation of Quran and, uh, you know, join us when we prayed and everything. Um, but they were fairly young. So they did go to um, daycare, francophone daycare, so that they could, you know, keep comfortable with their French because that's my mother tongue. And in Saskatchewan, it's all in English. And my mother's, uh, my husband speaks like my husband's mother tongue is Amazigh. And then his second tongue is Arabic. And we spoke in English. So out of concern for my daughters, I put them in a French daycare. So the Islamic teaching in Saskatchewan was a lot more by example and by exposure than by actual teaching, I would say, in terms of my children. I never put them in an Islamic school or something like this. And in what year did you guys move to to Libya? Uh, two thousand and nine. So what? How? What is that story? How did you end up moving there? Um, so my husband was getting done with his uh, master's degree in uh, in Saskatchewan in Canada, and he decided that he wanted to do a PhD in uh, France. So, you know, we had to get this trip like this. We had to get this in order like to move to France and all this so he had to be registered in a language school so he could learn the French and then be registered for his PhD um, in the French university uh, obviously we needed a place to stay so we had to find and rent an apartment find a language school decide which city we wanted to go to all that so that's um, basically was the beginning of, of our jo like journey we it was about leaving Canada and heading to Europe 
Um, and then a few weeks before we were like ready to leave, actually, we were heading to France and all that. My husband, two, three weeks before traveling to Europe, um, tells me, asks me if maybe we could uh, take two, three weeks to go visit Libya um, and visit his family because his mother, for example, doesn't actually really have papers in Libya. She's she's born in times when they didn't have official papers and all this. So basically, she'll never have a passport and she'll never travel. So he was, you know, my husband was trying to convince me to go based on the idea that she, at, at the very least, his mom would never get the chance to meet um, his children, his daughters. So it would be good if we could just go there a few weeks before heading to France. Um, I wasn't super thrilled, but I agreed to do it. And that's how we ended up in Libya. And when you get to Libya w with the girls, uh, so you, you're in your mind, you're supposed to only be there for a few days. A few uh, weeks. Yeah. Two, few, three weeks maximum. Three weeks, yeah. 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 Uh, and you know, as I'm, as I'm there, the first few days upon like arriving in Libya, I find that when his family, they're talking to us, it's as if they're not aware that we're leaving in just two, three weeks. I, I find them talking as if we're, we're getting organized to live there. So, um, after a few days of this, I kind of, you know, I asked my husband about this. So what is this? How come when your brothers, they, they talk, they don't seem aware that we're leaving in just a few weeks. Like it's, they seem to think we're, we're like installing here. We're, we're organizing to live here. Um, and he, uh, actually that's when he opened up and, uh, told me the truth that, uh, that he had planned this for, I guess, over a year, a year and a half, and that the girls were not leaving Libya. Uh, they had to stay there. Um, he didn't want them to go out at all of Libya. And uh, in Libya, I mean, children mostly belong to the father in any case. Um, and as a foreign woman, I have no legal recourse, really. Um, so I, that they're like, when he told me this, it, it felt like, I, I, I don't know, a nightmare. And, uh, it was, I, I knew immediately that that's, that was the reason why he brought us to Libya because he knew that this cuts all my power of decision. There's nothing I can do there anymore. Like there's nothing I can do for me or for my daughters. There's no way to, you know, if he chooses to keep them there, there is no way I can just fight it and take him, take them out. So um, him being Libyan automatically makes your daughters also Libyan citizens and you as well, right? Not me. No, not it you? makes no. me. No, if I live, if I'm married to a Libyan citizen and I live in Libya, I can get like a sort of a permanent residency type okay. of thing but you can never be a citizen of Libya as uh, that's what my husband told me at that time that you can never become a citizen of, of Libya you are born a citizen of Libya you can't become one but what about the daughters because they're Libyans their father is Libyan no matter where they're born in the world they're Libyans so they are automatically yes Libyan by, even though they were birth. born in Canada exactly by birth because of their father they have Libyan citizenship I don't and you could never get it, but they automatically have it because their father is a Libyan. Exactly. Okay. It's interesting. The best 
the best I could get while I was there was that uh, permanent residency permit. And you can't leave with your girls out of the country without his permission since they're no. Libyan citizens. Yeah, they're Libyan citizens. And even if I was a Libyan woman, I still can't go out of the country with my kids without his authorization. Um, so you, you actually, you need a male authorization for, as far as I can tell, pretty much any kind of female, whether you're 40 or 10. So both I and our daughters needed um, his authorization to get out of Libya. Um, we we didn't. Um so why trick you like this? Why mislead you that you're only going to be in Libya for three weeks and then trap you there with the girls? Like, wh why do all this? Why Why does he want to live in Libya? Why does he want, like, uh, the d girls to live in Libya? Well, you know, apparently he doesn't like Libya either. So I did ask him frequently about this. Um, I, my... We were in Saskatchewan from 2004 to 2008 or 2009, and um, my mother passed away during those years. And my husband felt, and in a sense, he's he's not entirely wrong, but he's also not ent entirely right. My mother's death was like a turning point for me, and and that turning point made me move away from islam i had been studying islam already for a few years like studying it seriously and and you know in depth and what i was finding was freaking me out to say the very least and my mother's death was like a cherry on on that sunday for me um i i, I instead of instead of keeping my questions, my doubts, and my debates about Islam inside, I started to actually vocalize them. I started to ask my, my husband questions or to have discussions with him. So look, I've been studying this and that. Um, this is what, or I, I'm studying something in the Quran, and then I have to go look in the Sunnah and then Tafsir, right, to help explain it because I don't understand it. And the more layers of explanations I get, the more freaked out I am. So the, the the my mother's death was like a turning point in that this is when I started to voice my frustration. This is when you're still in uh, Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, right? yeah. exactly. My mother passed away in 2007. Um, so this is when I started to voice uh, my frustrations and my my doubts about Islam, and that's when he began to plan this. Um, he could not tolerate uh, the mother of his kids to not be a very practicing woman or to even just move away from Islam. Um, however, when he found me doubting, while we were still in Saskatchewan, he pretended to be perfectly okay with it. Uh, so, you know, like I was talking about putting the girls, um, in, in, uh, gymnastics lessons and sports lessons and maybe dancing lessons and all that. And he pretended to agree with that, but truthfully, it, it was driving him crazy inside because, but because as, as Muslim what? girls, they wouldn't be really allowed to do those kind of activities. And, right? No, exactly. This is like, this is, uh, prostitute type behavior, uh, dancing classes and gymnastics classes. This is not what good proper women do. Um, so, or little girls. What other limitations were there in your household due to Islam? Uh, we were, we, we were trying in Saskatchewan, as I, you know, as I was saying, we, we tried to get very knowledgeable and practicing. So basically at some point there was, 
little TV, very little. There would be a little bit of cartoons for the girls and things like that. But we basically, my husband and I, besides news, stopped watching any kind of human program, like any TV or movies with humans in it. Uh, no more music. Uh, any kind of music, just Nasheed and Quran, and that was it, like Quran and uh, religious singing without instruments. Um, so basically, that that was it. You know, I, I wouldn't read, listen, or watch anything that was not Islamic at that point. Um, so the, the restrictions were fairly big in my house uh, in that sense. The no music thing was was a killer. It's uh, life sucks without music. But after your mom passed away, you wanted to lift a lot of these restrictions from the household. I did. I did lift them, and this is where he pretended he was fine with that. I started watching TV again. Um, the girls would listen to like family movies with me, not adult movies, but also not cartoon movies, like uh, family movies, but with actual people in it like Ella Enchanted type of thing or whatnot. So we started watching this again. I started listening to music again. Um, and he pretended to be fine with that for over a year. And actually, apparently, he wasn't fine inside. He was seething inside. And so he organizes this whole scenario where you guys are all going to move for a PhD he's going to do? Yes, uh, I asked him why all this trouble for, for France if you knew we were just going to Libya and, and staying there. And he told me word for word, like I quote, that um, I knew that if we didn't have something very serious waiting for us somewhere, you would never accompany me to Libya with the girls. So that's what he told me. He knew that I would never accompany him unless I felt like something is guaranteed waiting for us somewhere. So that's why he made me do all the paperwork and all that for France so that I would be so sure that we're heading to France that there is no way he would ever think about keeping us in Libya. That He felt like that was the only way I would ever agree to accompany him in Libya. And I, I got to say, he, you know, he's uh, smart that it was true. I would have never accompanied him to Libya if we had not had this waiting for us in France. So you're in Libya. He breaks the news to you. Uh, how do you react? Do you yell at him? Do you tell him, I want to go back? Do you try to go to an embassy? Do you just try to get on a plane? What, what do you do? Uh, well, I freaked out. I yeah. definitely freaked out for the first 24 hours. It, it, it really, it felt like a, a horror movie or a nightmare. So basically for the first 48 hours, all I could do was freak out. Um, after freaking out, calm, calm the sum, I, I, um, he, there isn't much. I, I can't just take the girls and leave in a plane. That's not doable in Libya. First of all, um, there are some women who walk on the streets uh, by themselves in Libya, but very rarely, or sometimes women in small groupings, right? Groupings of women unaccompanied by men, uh, especially downtown Tripoli, but it's, it's not super frequent. Usually women are accompanied by men when they walk outside. In my husband's family, furthermore, th there's not one woman who has basically walked uh, outside of her house 
without being accompanied by a man. So this was not an option. I couldn't just take my girls and go to the airport. I, I could be stopped on the street anywhere and I could be stopped at the airport. So, and this is like, I was always with my husband anyways. Um, this was not really an option. Um, I, I didn't, at that point, I didn't think to call the embassy or anything like this. All I was telling myself for the first few weeks after I, I knew this, after we got to Libya, was that it's going to kill my family if I tell them this. So, uh, like, it's it literally going to kill them. Like, they're going to die from worry and anger and frustration and whatnot. So, what I told them, and we, we got there in July... What I told my family at the end of July, beginning of August, is that actually I liked it in Libya. I like it. And I think instead of going to France, we're going to delay the studies to France at least for a year and try it there in Libya and see how it goes. Um, so I, I, I think uh, part of me, like the reason why I didn't contact the embassy or didn't tell anyone about this actually uh, was the concern for my family. I, I was freaked out. I, I was so scared for my family finding out and, and being scared and upset, um, being concerned and also judging me, uh, whatnot. So I, I basically just lied to all my family and friends until I think December. Um, my husband, after getting there, we, we got there in July by September he left me there in Libya with the kids, with the girls to come back to Canada to work and make some more money so we could actually buy an apartment in Libya uh, for us to live in. We were renting an apartment and renting is super unusual in Libya. So it wasn't easy to find and the apartment wasn't that nice. And we needed like some capital, right, for to, to buy an apartment. So he left me in Libya and came back to Canada uh, to work for several months. I think he came back to Canada from... September or October and stayed all the way till March. And you so, couldn't leave with the girls while he was gone? No. No, I tried. Um, you did try? I did try. During that time, uh, those months where he left me in Libya, and it should be important to probably mention at this point that normally, and what was his original plan, obviously, if a Libyan man leaves, uh, his wife will go live, if she's Libyan, with her family. And in my case, because I'm not Libyan, I have no family there. Logically, I would have had to go to someone in his family to stay with them. But at that point, um, though I still didn't have the idea to try to get my girls outside of Libya, I was trying to adapt to Libyan life, rather, um, lying to my family and all that. So I, I knew there was no way I could live like in someone else's house 24-7. So basically... I, uh, I, I'm not sure what's the right word in English. I, I nagged my husband so, 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 so much in the weeks that where he was preparing his departure for Canada, I nagged him so much and I managed to convince him that I would do something really bad, like hurt myself or hurt other people if he was forcing me to live with someone else where I have to like wear hijab 24 seven because there's men in the house all the time and like men that are not my husband. So I told him I will never survive this. I, I, this is it. Like I will do something bad. So he, I guess he, he knew I, I can have quite the temper. So he decided to leave me alone with my kids in our apartment, the, in the apartment we were renting there. So 
basically he he went back to Canada to work and left me there against the wishes of course of his entire family who were very traumatized that a Libyan man would do this um left me with the car and um left for Canada so around christmas time that year is when i actually broke down um with my family over the internet and told them that he was keeping us there and that it wasn't my choice i that i hated it there i hate islam i i hate libya i don't want to stay there but i have no choice um december not far from christmas time i believe is is when i broke down and obviously after that things changed a little bit um were were you not able to travel be because to get the girls out of the country they would need a permission from the father even if he's not in the country is that why you yeah. can get out yeah absolutely i mean there's not like a in islam and and in libya now i realize that in libya there's a lot of corruption so it's not always the case the, the the rules and the laws are not always followed if you are a girl from a wealthy family and a connected wealthy family possibly you can just go to an office somewhere pick up your passport and leave um that's if you're well connected i'm not sure what what are the actual libyan laws um as opposed to sharia law but normally you need a male guardian your entire life so women in libya as far as i i knew uh they don't travel without a male relative like there's there and those that do um because i met a few women there who traveled by themselves and they told me yeah but it's kind of cheating the system it, it's like the the people in the airport and the people at the passport office close their eyes because because she comes from an important family and she's paying them off um so since i didn't have those th this was not an option to me first of all that i didn't know the language very well like i can read and write arabic but my speaking is not very fluent and especially with the libyan accent um so this was not an option to me grabbing you know the girls passports i i i didn't even know where to go or which you know government so I, official to contact yeah, i kind of know what you mean so there there might be ways to do it if you're kind of an old rather older girl and you have contacts and you can kind of speak to somebody and you have money to give but you couldn't yes. speak the language and you wanted to get out with two young girls yes or the daughters of a living man Libyan. exactly and you so couldn't really speak to anyone there and you didn't probably didn't have money to pay off people with and pay nope. for multiple flight tickets and all these kind exactly. of things yeah exactly so this was just not an option to me and going to a libyan like right being a foreigner i'm either working there or i'm married to a libyan citizen and they they know this they see me wearing hijab going there with my daughters who have a libyan name there's no one who's going to give me traveling papers or let me go through security at the airport no one that's just no oh so they they especially no. will notice like th these girls a foreign are, woman trying to go away with, with Libyan, Libyan, girl, oh, with Libyan, Libyan girls. girls. They're not going to yes. let them out of the country. So I know a no. little bit about this, I should mention, because the story, which I've, I I heard you say a little bit about in, in a video before we I started the interview, um, is not a rare story of a Muslim, Muslim husband uh, taking his wife under false pretense to the country of origin and trapping them there. Um, I've spoken to other women this has happened to 
And uh, one of the people I've spoken to uh, who I had on my, my podcast, she mentioned that there was a story of a woman called Betty Mahmoudi yes. uh, who wrote the, the book called Not Without My Daughter. And which yeah. was made into a movie with Sally Field around the 80s or 90s. But I think this happened around maybe the 80s um, yes. where she had married a Muslim Iran uh, Iranian man. And it was a very similar story. He was a doctor. He said, I just want to travel, you know, for a week to Iran to visit my family. Uh, this was after the revolution. And they get there. And he also says to to uh, Betty Mahmoudi, she he's like, you, we're not leaving. I don't want my, my daughter to grow up in a non-Muslim country. And, yeah. And, and I, I, I was recommended this movie because it was very hard for me to understand. And I think it's very hard for a lot of Westerners to understand when you say like you're in a country and you're an, you're not a citizen of the country like yourself right like why can't you just get up and leave why can't you just <laughs> go to the airport and just like get on a plane and just just leave i mean that that's anybody would think that's just what you can do and so yes, i i didn't actually. i when i spoke to these women i couldn't really understand that so they said like watch this movie and it's brilliantly done i haven't want, read the book um but it's based on a true story and it shows the process of her getting trapped there of the family also being part of, of the plan to like, you know, no, you're, you're staying here. We also don't want the little girl to grow up in a non-Muslim country. And as, and it shows how she goes to the American embassy and says, I'm an American citizen. My daughter's an American citizen. I want to leave. They're like, well, you can't leave. There's nothing no, we can no. do for you. Like there, no, no, you, you can't live in the embassy. And also no. you would, you would have to go through immigration of this country. And the fact that you're married to, a, uh, an Iranian man means your daughter's Iranian, you're Iranian, you can't, in your case, you weren't also a citizen, but she was in that case being married to Iranian and they weren't, they're not going to let you leave without permission. And it, it, it's brilliantly done and shows how little by little, all the things you think you can do, you just can't do. No, well, and, and people don't realize this, but as a woman, I, I think we take everything for granted in the Western world. As a woman, about half of the countries of this planet, if you, you step out of your country and you go into those countries, you lose any kind of right over yourself that you have. I don't think people realize this. Also, between Not Without My Daughter and my story, there's hundreds of stories like, the, like mine. Hundreds. We are hundreds of Canadian women. Never mind American women, French women, British women. We are hundreds of women on the planet kept with their children against their will in a country where women have no rights whatsoever. People here, because we take our freedoms, our liberties and our rights so much for granted, it's, you have no idea how the rest of the world lives. And you so, think because you're a foreigner, you think because you have a foreign passport, you're going to be uh, exempt from those rights? That's what even I would assume. But yeah, I'm no. learning that's not the case. That's not necessarily the case. As for myself, for example, in Libya, if I have my passport and my exit visa is still good, I could leave. You know, if my husband gave me my passport, which he was keeping, if he gave me my passport and my exit visa from Libya is still um, uh, active, is still it's still good, uh, I could go out. Libya would not keep a foreign woman by force in the country, but I could never leave with my kids ever. Like the, 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 this is not, that can't be done. And this is the case 
for you know most of muslim majority countries some of them a woman couldn't even go but in libya as a foreign woman if i had had my passport and my exit visa was still good i could leave just not my daughters and in this particular case my husband was keeping my passport um so and that's uh, also very different that you have an entrance visa and an exit visa as opposed to a lot of the western world where you just get a visa for a certain amount of time and you just leave when yeah, your ticket no, says libya is not it's it's something else even in north africa or in what we call the the arab world uh, middle east and north africa uh, they have a very it's obviously Gaddafi was a, a dictator, so security was crazy in the country. Um, so you do you do have entry uh, entry and exit visas and security to cross countries. Like if you go between Libya or at that point, if you went uh, between Libya and Tunisia, like the security, it's it's nothing you can imagine if you you're used to crossing from Canada to the states and coming back. It's like another world. You can't imagine the levels of securities uh, security that they have. So uh, can I ask you what um what was life like? in Libya during that time that your husband wasn't there, or just at least the first year that you were in this country with your daughters, what, what, what was in um, general, what was it like? It, it was very hard. It was very, very difficult. Um, it, it made me then, then the first few months in Libya, I became fully aware of what kind of rights that women have in the West that I took so much for granted um that i couldn't even actually appreciate uh you hear many women in canada whining that life is so difficult for them as women i'm like wow <laughs> you have it so nice in canada you have no idea um so the, the first few months were felt horrific to me in many ways um and especially my husband leaving me there and and coming back to canada it it made it harder and it made it easier in a sense, like, you know, I was saying earlier that that's when I told my family what happened. So immediate, immediately, my family helped me to get in contact with the Canadian Embassy, Canadian Foreign Affairs, or I'm sorry, it's called Global Affairs now because foreign is a racist word. So <laughs> Global Affairs, yeah, yeah, it's, it's Trudeau is hard, is, likes these things. So now or is this a Trudeau affairs. thing that foreign is, is now a dirty word? Yes. So he's the one who changed foreign oh affairs God, to global okay. affairs. Yes, I, we have a lovely, lovely prime minister. Um, so lovely. I mean, he looks really good on pictures. I can't deny that. Um, so we, uh, you know, my family put me in contact with foreign affairs. Uh, with the, I, I contacted the embassy in Libya. And this is when I realized the, the depth of the, the shit. I'm sorry for the, the bad word, the shit I was in. Um, is that there was nothing for me to do. Canadian embassy told me the same thing that American embassy told Betty Mahmoud from uh, that not without my daughter. Is that you can't you you could come here but we'd have to ask you to leave at some point we can't get involved in diplomatic issues in the country so the, the fact that you're canadian and we're a canadian embassy means nothing to you at this point there's nothing we can do for you even if you come we'll keep you like 48 hours and then we'll kindly ask you to leave before you put us in trouble with you know again international law and diplomacy and all this so um Canadian, gov Canadian government and embassy in Libya, there was literally nothing um, that I could do. 
then I contacted a lawyer who in Canada who helped me to get custody of the girls, legal custody of the girls, according to Canadian law, right? So I, I succeeded to get custody of the girls. And from then on, I tried to change their names, get them like, um, get them uh, temporary traveling papers or passports. Um, nothing succeeded except getting custody of them. I got custody of them. That's that, that was one thing, but I could not succeed to change their names. I could not succeed um, to get them passports or anything like this. So the time in Libya felt traumatic and hopeless. Um, you know, after I got custody, I was like, okay, now what am I supposed to do? But this is custody so, you got within Canada only. Yes. You got full yes. custody outside of the power of the husband. Exactly. Yeah. That's Canada and any other country who, you know, would follow Canadian law before Libyan law. So if I was stuck almost anywhere in Europe, European countries, if my, my husband brought my daughters outside to Europe somewhere, most of Europe uh, would work with Canada to, to send my daughters back to Canada. Um, so the, the, the legal custody in Canada does give me a good legal advantage in the world, like on the entire planet in many ways, as opposed to um, not having it. But the Canadian uh, embassy wouldn't even give you past new passports? No, no, the, no, because it, um, they, even though I had custody of the kids, I, there was something about still needing my husband's. And I'm like, what do you mean? I got custody of the kids because I'm trying to run away from my husband and you want my husband's signature to get the passports. So eventually they said, okay, we can't give you new passports, but if you were able to travel out of the country to find a way to travel, we could issue um, emergency traveling papers. So that wait, you got full custody under Canadian law, under Canadian government, you got full custody. And when you're at the embassy, they still wouldn't give you passports for your girls without permission of the husband, even though he has you trapped in a country? That that's what they told me on the phone. I've never been to the Canadian Canadian embassy in Libya. I've only ever dealt with them on the phone. Uh, that's what they were telling me. Uh, basically, now you know. Is you that would correct? think like you right? know? I, I think Westerners have like this crazy idea, and I think I might even have thought this way before talking to people like yourself. Is that if you got trapped in a situation like you're in? You know, heli international helicopters are just going to dive in and take a you SWAT out. Team. SWAT teams yeah. are going to come in and they're just going to rush you onto a plane. Yeah. And it's, it's I, you know. I, yeah, I have a sister-in-law who still doesn't, she's still confused as to why uh, Canada didn't send a SWAT team to get me and my daughters from Libya. And I'm like, what a romantic version we have of our own governments. And of the world, of the planet on which we live, generally speaking, what a crazy little romantic fantasy bubble we live in. Um, you know, governments are there to to uh, help, like, to, to, everything revolves around money. I'm, my daughters and I are meaningless in the eyes of our government because we don't represent big economical assets or financial assets in any way. So SWAT teams would definitely go and get people from like um, corrupted people who work for corrupted companies in Canada. There were some, there were, there were Canadian citizens working in Libya 
um, in Tripoli and in the middle of the desert for a, a company which has been accused of corruption in Canada since then. So they sent a SWAT team in a military plane to get these people out of Libya because they matter, because they bring a lot of money inside Canada, even though we all know it's corruption and they don't pay taxes. Somehow they're viewed as financial assets. So we will go get them with SWAT teams, but not women stuck stuck somewhere with their kids. And again, the, the, the Canadian uh, foreign affairs, they wouldn't give me, obviously, this is protected information, they wouldn't give me an actual number But they did tell me that there are women, Canadian women, in my situation in every single uh, Middle Eastern, North African country, like in every one of them. There's at least one Canadian woman stuck, stuck there with her kids with a government that will do nothing to help them. Which is fair enough. It was my very bad decision to accompany um, to accompany him there. So it's not for Canadian citizens or the Canadian government to pay for the bad decisions that I make. But at least people out there know that you shouldn't have this romantic version of your government. As a woman, if you ever get stuck anywhere, completely deprived of your rights, your your government will do nothing to help you. They can't and they won't. So this would be, I think, a good lesson for women out there to know. And this is uh, not just Libya, as we said. Like this is this is happening to w all kinds of women from all over the world in all kinds of Muslim majority countries. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. so what was your uh, life daily as far as like what would you do for money or did you work or going to the store? Could you go by yourself? Or did you have to go accompanied? What was life like for your daughters? Um, well, at first, when I was there and my husband left us uh, for for Canada, I mean, it was tough, but okay. I wasn't working when I was there. My husband left some money. Obviously, his brothers and families, like his brothers and their wives and their kids would try to keep me very occupied. So they almost every day would come to get me. So we would go shopping somewhere, um, maybe go have a picnic somewhere, bring me to eat at their house to not let me at home alone too frequently. So I wouldn't be bored or something like this. Probably also to check on me a little bit and surveil me a little bit. Um, so life was okay um but hard i as a canadian woman um and a hot tempered canadian woman like life in libya felt like hell to me yes in order like there was maybe the vegetables i didn't have to be accompanied to go and get anything anywhere else i wanted to go i had to be accompanied by someone in my husband's family so like everything in a daily life requires supervision from a male For a Canadian woman, this is like, I, you want to scream or break something. I, I'm like, what is this? I'm not a kid. I don't need babysitting. Um, also, Libyan men, if they hear you talk a foreign language on the street, I was dressed extremely modestly. Like, as I told you, I was wearing hijab and I was wearing big black abayas, big black dresses from Saudi. I didn't cover my face, but then again, most Libyan women do not cover their faces. Um So just hearing me talk a different language uh, with my, let's say, brother-in-law and my kids on the street, brother-in-law and sister-in-law, or with my sister-in-law and nephews, 
cars would stop on the street and offer me wads of money. Men would, they, they would think I'm a prostitute. They, they, even though they see me wearing big hijab, like a very modest version of hijab, they see me holding, like holding my daughter's hands in the street. They see that I'm accompanied, like I'm appropriately accompanied by males. And still they would try to offer me wads of money to sleep with them. So I mean, life in Libya is, is like nothing you can imagine here. So it was hard. I didn't like it. It was difficult. Um, I had a semi-automatic washing machine. This is another hill all on its own. Um, so I, I found it hard. Um, very, very difficult. Then my husband came back from Canada Uh, and I found a job in a private school. So this was a different set of hardships. Life was still hard and painful, but I was so busy that I didn't have much time to, to be necessarily depressed about it. I, I was working full time, uh, working more hours than my husband, actually. And I, I still had to do everything at home. Uh, Libyan men are not known. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and make a generalization here, which I know people don't love. Um, but it's Arab men are not super, super used to helping at home. Like, uh, the, the macho factor is pretty strong. I, I, as no, no, Arab men, um, come on. <laughs> oh, come on. I mean, I'm part Arab myself. Like I'm, I'm part Syrian myself. My mother does come from a Syrian background, so I'm going to apply this to my family as well. Um, you know, Arabic culture, Arab culture can frequently, like the macho thing is really strong there. So um, my husband, as most Libyans, actually, I to be fair, I would have to say my husband probably helped more at home than probably all the totality of Libyan men, but still nowhere like a Canadian man. So I still had to do almost everything at home and everything related to my work. So that was, um, and I was a teacher in a private school, so I had to get all my lesson plans ready, homework, all that. Um, it was it was tough, but at least I was busy and I was active. Uh, then the uprisings began in Libya while I was there. So this, this is when... Do you remember around what year this was? I, I can't remember the, the beginning of the upri uprisings if it was in the winter of 2009 or 2010. Yeah, I, I one think of those it years. Was 2000, yeah. It was 2010, I think. Um, and uh, then the uprisings began and, and then, I mean, there was no political or economical stability anymore. Banks closed down. Um, Gaddafi took all the money from the banks. So like, you know, my husband had a certain amount of money in his bank account, but that didn't change anything. When he would go to the bank, he couldn't take any money out. There was no money in the bank. Um, so some of the supplies started to get low. There was always fighting in the streets. Um, schools closed down. So I, I went back to being stuck at home and my kids being stuck at home too. Um, so then life took a different kind of pattern and, and it was very, very difficult. I, on the one hand, I had my husband who was still very, very, very practicing, um, much more of an Islamist than a Muslim by that point. Um, it's not enough that he wants to be a Muslim, but everyone else around him has to live in a very Islamic way too. So still there was no music, no movies in my house. Um, not too much TV. It was, um, you know, it, it was, 
it was bleak. What was the tension like around Qaddafi? Were most people you were surrounded by were they very anti-Qaddafi or? Yes, yes. I, I, I have to say that in many years, like I was in Libya maybe three years, but then in Saskatchewan for four years, my closest friends were all Libyans, like my husband. Um, I, I've never met, I've met one Libyan man and his wife who doesn't care about politics and his kids being pro Qaddafi. They are the only people I've ever met. Everybody else in my husband's family, every other Libyan person I have ever met in my life was strongly, profoundly anti-Qaddafi. I, I've met one man that was pro, who was pro-Qaddafi in my life, and that's it. I know there is more, because I saw them on TV, and I heard them shooting at the, the people, the anti-Qaddafi crowd. So I know they're there, I just never met any. Um, I've only ever met really strongly anti-Qaddafi people. So in the streets, what was happening is that um, you had like anti-Qaddafi people going for demonstrations, which again, demonstrations are not very frequent in Libya. So they were being shot at by the army and whatnot on the street. Um, then you had the pro-Qaddafi people shooting at the anti-Qaddafi people, Qaddafi shooting at everyone, whether they were pro-Qaddafi, anti-Qaddafi, it was, it was chaos. It, it was just shooting everywhere, um, no money anywhere, and eventually food supplies and whatnot starting to get low. Um, as, as the violence got worse in the streets, uh, eventually everything else closed down, right? Like most of the workplaces, uh, all the schools... Again, not a lot of supplies available, so people were basically just trapped inside their houses, mostly. Um, Even during this time, was your husband not inclined to leave the country? I asked him. I, I told him, okay, now that there's uprisings, and I asked him later on when there was a full-on war in the streets, uh, much worse than uprisings, I asked him, okay, there's a war now. Like it's, This is a war zone, a third world country war zone. Obviously, you are going to bring us now. You're going to take me and my daughters and bring us back to Canada. It's uh, I should note that my husband is also a Canadian citizen. Like He got the citizenship um, in Canada. So it's very easy for him to just take his passport and leave. So I told him, obviously, now you're going to bring us back to Canada, right? Like We can't stay here and live like this. And he told me, and again, I quote him um, word for word, and until this day, when I asked myself whether he was serious or he meant it, I still think he was dead on serious and really, really meant it. Um, I told him, bring us back to Canada to, to safety, please. And he told me, it would be better if our daughters and you got killed and raped, raped and killed in my face, then you bring them to Canada raise them as non-Muslims and you guarantee them hell. That's what he told me. And considering it is still hell in Libya, it is still war, he's still there with his daughters. So I'm just going to go right ahead and presume that he actually really meant it. It would be better if our daughters got raped and killed in our faces than for me to turn them into, you know, disgusting non-Muslims who are going to go to hell. And he didn't say this on, in anger, yelling. No, no, he seemed pretty calm. And I, I've, as I told you, like, like as I said, like just two minutes ago, I, I debated. I still do sometimes. Could he possibly mean it? Well, he's still there with my girls. 
So I'm I'm just gonna have to go ahead and think that he means it very seriously and very literally. Muslims are good with literality. And this isn't an idle hypothetical situation. You guys are in a war zone in a third world country that's very dangerous. That could happen. In a third world country where you're getting news every day about Gaddafi's people raping other people and rebels raping other people and everybody raping everybody and everybody killing everybody. Yeah, that's it's an. an I, uh, I I remember during um during that time the news was reporting that Gaddafi uh, military was passing out even Viagra to the soldiers to encourage rape of women. I don't know if people remember that, but I do. I I remember that that this was in the news there too in Libya and the thing is. Again, never doubt, like rape is used as a weapon in war zones. It is used as a systematic, um, like, I'm not sure what's the right in English, like I have it in French in my head. It is used as a weapon against, like the people rape women as a, as, a, as a part of war, as a tool of war. So yes, it is. I wouldn't be surprised if it was true, actually. Um, that if Gaddafi had given Viagra to soldiers, I really wouldn't be surprised. So he probably really did mean it when he was that worried about their eternal souls burning in hell for all of eternity. Again, he's still there with them now. So I'm going to go ahead and think that, yes, he really, really did mean it. And he still does. He still does. And And, and you were talking before about life during this uh, this time in in a, an apartment and not having a lot of resources what else is that like uh well as the war obviously this was at the beginning just during the uprisings now uh, right so as the war kept on getting deeper and bigger and more people involved there were less and less resources eventually we were just out of electricity all the time um so it's like you're you're cooking in the summer for Ramadan. You're trying to cook in time for the sundown and you have electricity maybe 40 minutes a day in your house. Um, and it's summer, Libyan summer, you need you need AC. If you don't have AC, you die. Um, so life became even more difficult in that there were no more, there, there was really no more money, no more resources. Um, people weren't going out anymore. Schools were closed, um, but then on top of it, there was no electricity most of the time. Um, running water was really, really limited. Uh, so life became, and, and women were not seen in the streets at all anymore because of the political unrest. So by that time, life to me felt like an absolute prison, like a, an absolute prison. Um, it, it, uh, there was, you know, there was already no more TV or music, but now there wasn't even electricity at all. Um, everything had to cook like on a, on a gas, um, you gas have stove. like, we, we were lucky to have a gas stove, electric oven, but gas stove. So I could still cook basic lunches for me and my daughters, but showering was like hell. We had to boil water. It was cold water only and coming from wells. Um, everything that you had to wash, you had to wash in well water. So, I mean, life just got really... And again, the things we take for granted in the West, it, it's, it's crazy. Um, we have no idea 
how it is. Uh, then the situation in Tripoli got so bad, so bad. The fighting got really close to... I mean, we lived not too far from Gaddafi's compound. And there was... Uh, we lived not too far from Buslim area in Tripoli. There was a big prison full of political dissidents. So eventually they... I, I, Wait, I, aren't, weren't most of the political dissidents who were in prison under Gaddafi, weren't they like hardcore jihadists or Islamists? Uh, many of them, yes. And some of them were just anti-Qaddafi without right. being yeah. Islamists. So uh, we lived very close to that prison and there kept being like breakouts like, and prisoners would break out and leave and run. Um, the bombing was very, very close to our house because again, we lived less, if I'm not mistaken, we lived like between 5-10 kilometers away from Qaddafi's compound. So uh, we had to leave our windows and doors open so our windows wouldn't crack from NATO's bombing. Um, and the NATO's bombing like was happening on a daily basis, but in a very organized kind of way, as far as I could tell. First of all, Libyans uh, begged for NATO's help for weeks Uh, before NATO did agree to help. And when they did agree to help, apparently, like they, they promised. Now, I'm sure they broke their promise at some point, but you couldn't see NATO's soldiers on the ground. They were just doing airstrikes. That's all they were allowed to do. That's the only kind of help uh, that Libya allowed them to, to give or ask them to bring. So you had like NATO bombing the shit out of Gaddafi's compound. So you had like, it was just bombings everywhere, no electricity. Um, so, and the fighting in the streets got worse between the anti-Qaddafi people and pro-Qaddafi people. So we, we could see fires everywhere in Tripoli. We could hear the gunshots getting closer to home. So one day, um, most of the people in my husband's family who lived in Tripoli, like his brothers, we all decided, all of us together, to try to run to the mountain. My husband is originally from the mountain. Uh, the most of the cities in the mountain were already quote unquote liberated from Gaddafi. Um, the western mountain, as well as the the furthest eastern point of Libya, were the first places to liberate from Gaddafi. The the first places, the first populations to fight against Gaddafi. So the mountain had had most of its cities were, as I said, like uh, rebel strongholds. So we decided to leave uh, Tripoli because it was getting just too bad and to try to go to the mountain for a few weeks or a few months until, until things got better. Um, It's just amazing that you he was a Canadian citizen as well and he could take his family out of that instead of yeah, putting no. them in so much risk. It, well, yeah, no. And it, you know, it, it, the, the risk was definitely there too. Like I have not been shot at. Um, but I mean, we saw people with beards and scarves in their faces with massive, massive guns everywhere. In those days in Libya and Tripoli, before we even made it to the mountain, there were checkpoints everywhere, everywhere. So going from A to B would take you so much longer than usual because you kept being stopped at checkpoints. You never know who was who and who they represented and, you know, what they might want to do to you. So that was a stress Um, all in itself. And also, I should really like point out that as, um, as the political unrest began, as the uprisings began in Libya, uh, I did try at that point, I did try to run away with the kids. How did you try and do that? 
Uh, I waited on a Friday um, during uh, Juma. My husband was at the mosque praying. And uh, the reason why I did it at that point is because, you know, we were chatting about earlier the fact that Libya has, uh, you have the need to have an entry as well as an exit visa. Right. If you're a foreigner, you need an exit visa to exit Libya. So because of the political unrest and the uprisings, before before it turned to a full-on war, it was just a few weeks or a few months into the uprisings, Qaddafi uh, lifted the necessity of the exit visa so that foreigners could exit Libya as quickly as possible. So I took advantage of that. I called the Canadian embassy. They told me, yes, we have a Canadian truck there. We'll have your traveling papers, like emergency travel papers ready for you and the girls. Just get there as soon as you, you can. Um, and on the day, on that Friday, I guess I that was the only time my husband wasn't at home. So that was the only time to really try it. Um, anyways, it was a very difficult trip to make it to the airport like you you have no idea how scary and difficult it was to even just make it to the airport um actually just finding a taxi to to bring me to the airport it was you know you're in a war zone um there are no women or children on the streets and haven't been women or children like there hasn't been women or children on the street for at least a month by now or more so any woman who is on the street is going to attract a lot. I mean, a woman on the street in Libya always attracts a lot of attention, but like would be even worse at that point. Uh, I lived in a street. Uh, one of my closest neighbors was my brother-in-law and uh, his wife and their kids. So just managing to get out of my street without getting caught was hard and like incredibly nerve wracking and scary. It took me about 15, like probably a solid half an hour to 40 minutes, 15 different 12 or 15 different taxi drivers who refused to take my money and bring us to the airport. Um, Why were they, they were refusing you? I, they could tell something was fishy about the story I was trying to tell them in my bad Lib Libyan accent. They couldn't understand. Like my kids, look kind of Arab. I also look Arab. I wear, I'm, I was wearing hijab. My Arabic sucks. Um, I don't know many words. I can't easily express what I need for them to do. So after two minutes, they would just pull up their window and like drive away. So eventually I, I, I found, uh, wouldn't they be more inclined to take a foreigner or is it that they think that you're running away with the daughters of a well, they felt man. something, you know, even in the area where I was, that's not where foreigners who work live and foreigners, the wives of foreigners who work don't wear hijab. So they don't find themselves in the neighborhood where I was uh, wearing hijab, attempting to jump in a taxi with girls that look Arabic, that look, that look like Arabs. So I think it's, it's the whole mix of things to them. Like, yeah, if I was just plainly a, a foreign, a foreigner downtown Tripoli, probably getting a taxi wouldn't have been that hard, even with my kids. Um, and, and I was in an area where I could not remove my hijab on the street. I would have probably gotten raped or stoned or worse. So I had to keep my hijab. So the taxi drivers were looking at my kids, looking at me, looking, trying to listen, to figure out my accent. Um, I, I was giving them like a kind of a, in French, we say tiré par les cheveux, like a story, which is 
so exaggerated, you know, like I, I'm sure they could tell my story made no sense. Um, the story I was trying to give them to convince them to drive me to the airport. So eventually I had to find an Egyptian taxi driver who looked at me exactly like the other ones, clearly not believing one word I was giving him. But eventually, I guess I could just see it in his face. He was like, I don't really care. I just want to help her. Um, so he took me and the girls and brought us to the airport. Uh, unfortunately, I made it too too late. I um, It took me a while to get organized there. Uh, the, the Canadian um, ambassador, well, not ambassador, but the people... Uh, officials from Canadian embassy had told me where I could find the Canadian truck on the grounds of the airport, but it took me a long time to find it because there were like uh, dozens of um, like tens of thousands of people at the airport. Were they, was this all like uh, thousands of people foreigners. trying to, trying to get out of, of Libya? Get out basically? of Libya. Yes. All the foreigners. Mm. Um, so the, the, so the airport during there. this time must've been a mess. It was absolute chaos, absolute chaos. Um, you couldn't even drive in the, 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 the airport, like not in the, obviously not in the building, but you couldn't even make it to the departures anymore. You had to park like two, three kilometers outside of the airport gates and just walk your way up. It took me such a long time. By the time I did find the Canadian bus, uh, my tra the tra emergency travel papers were not ready as they had told me they would. Like did that they you would have be ready passports though? No. I, I didn't have my passports nor my kids. Your, so they your, has, your husband had the passports of all of all three of you. Yeah, all, all the family. And I managed to find uh, money to steal to try to run away to, f from Libya, but I couldn't find their passports. So the, the emergency travel documents were not ready. Um, so I missed the Canadian military plane. Uh, then the Canadian officials decided to bring me to the Ukrainian military plane and send me to Kiev in Ukraine, in the Ukraine. And then um, from then I could just take a plane and get back to Canada. Um, and uh, that, you know, that's when my husband found us. Um, it's it's the, the Ukrainians, not one of them spoke English, as far as I can tell, like the military, uh, the soldiers couldn't speak English and the people in the lineup, I guess they couldn't speak English, but they all, they, they could tell I wasn't Ukrainian because I couldn't talk to them. Um, and I had a Canadian official with me wearing his Canadian, um, like Canadian flag on his back and, and everything. So um, I guess the Ukrainian people in the lineup and, and especially the soldiers, they must have somehow guessed what was happening. Like they kept looking at me and my daughters. And after a little while of waiting to board the the army military, Ukrainian military plane, um, the Ukrainians decided to hide me. Like they took me and, the, and my daughters from the end of the line, the waiting line, and they pulled us in the front, made us sit And, and, and the soldiers organized the lineup in front of us. So we were kind of par like partially concealed uh, from the rest of the people in the airport. So I feel like somehow they guessed my, my situation. Um, so they and, were trying to help you by hiding you from, from anybody who could guess that you were trying to escape uh, uh, Li Libya. You know, until now, I'll, I'll never like, I'll never be sure of it because mm. 
I'll never be sure of it, but that's really the impression I had. Yeah. Um, that is that, I, and until this day, that impression remains very, very strongly with me. I feel like they felt my stress and my anguish, and uh, they, they, they guessed it a little bit. Yeah, they were trying to hide us. Otherwise, this behavior made no sense. Taking us from the end of the waiting line, putting us in the front, making us crouch and sit on the floor, my daughters and I, and then tightening the lineup in front of us and asking the people to come together in the lineup, like to stick to each other arm to arm so that you could hardly see through yeah, the lineup. Yeah, it sounds I, almost almost sure that they were trying to help it, you. Yeah. It, it, it feels, it really, really feels like that. Um, but unfortunately, like as time was passing and we were wondering like, why are we not boarding the plane? Um, I, I knew, I felt like I had the instinct. I knew I was like, that's it. I know my husband called the airport and told them like, probably my, probably told them my foreign wife is trying to run away with my kids. So they, they like nothing was moving in the airport. We were many people at, at the, boarding gates close to each other and nobody was boarding the planes at all for over an hour and a half so I started to feel like something's wrong something's wrong and eventually anyways I I, I spotted my husband through the throngs of people at the airport and he spotted me even between the lineup of Ukrainian people trying to hide us he spotted me immediately and uh, came to find us so he was able to shut down the entire airport with no flights getting out at all, just with a phone call? I, I, I'll never know how it went. The Canadian official immediately asked me, what kind of juice does your husband have uh, that, that would explain this? And I couldn't tell. In my husband's family, there's stories of people disappearing in Gaddafi's jail system. Like, they were all anti-Qaddafi, so I, except for one of my husband's brothers, and by then... Uh, he was living in Tunisia because he was scared of the rebels. So, like, it doesn't... I, I don't know that my husband had any kind of political juice or financial juice to make this happen. So, I'm going to go... I'm going to have to go out on a limb here and say that Libyans, Libya, Libya has a very, very small population. That's 5 million people. And actually, that's 5 million people, including all the Africans who worked in terrible conditions in Libya. So it's probably closer to 4 million people. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny population. Um, and the, the, tribal, the tribal system and the tribal mentality is even stronger there, I think, than in most of Arab countries. I think Gaddafi played on that a lot to keep his position as a dictator for so long. Um, so what I saw during... Uh, my time in Libya is that it's it's a very um, um, can I pronounce this right? It's a very homogenous country. Everybody's the same. Everybody thinks the same. Everybody does the same, even when they come from entirely different cities, east or west, north or south. Um, and the 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 tribal spirit is strong. So a Libyan will always help another Libyan in need. So I figured that just my husband called and said, like, I'm no one, but I have a foreign woman who's trying to run away with my Libyan kids. And I would think that they would tell him, uh, okay, so we will just make sure no planes leave. Uh, come here as quick as you can and check it out and let us know. So basically when he found me and the kids, um, I, uh, 
I, he, he started to walk away with the kids and I was like in shock on the ground. And eventually one of the Ukrainian women pulled me back up on the feet and on my feet and gestured to me like, go, go after your kids. You, you can't stay here in shock. And he, like, if he walks out of the airport, I guess that's what she was trying to tell me. If she walk, if he walks out of the airport with them, you can never see them again. So I, I started to run after them. And by the time we made it to the airport security, they were basically asking him what he wanted what he wanted them to do with me. So it's like they, they were like, what should we do with her? So I don't know, but I guess if he told them have her put in jail, they would have. If he told them kill her, possibly they would have. If he told them rape her, then kill her, possibly they would have. I, I have no idea. They were literally just looking at him. They were not policemen. They were airport security asking him what they should do with his wife. And uh, he told them, I will bring her back home. Um, and that's what he did. And then life became even more miserable after that, if that was even possible. Uh, obviously, I was being checked a lot. Um, they, there was, they were watching me, him and his family. Um, I wasn't allowed to stay alone in my home with my girls for months after this. So he would leave in the morning to go anywhere to work or something else because my work was closed, but not his. So my husband's, my husband conti continued to work almost entirely through the, 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 the uprisings and like the war. So he would bring the kids to one of his sisters or brothers and leave them there for the day and bring them back at night. So I was alone all day at home. Um, and, uh, eventually when he did start to leave them with me again, um, someone that, that I, as I mentioned earlier, like one of his brothers was one of our closest neighbors on the same street, like two houses away. So he asked someone in his brother's family to call like every 45 minutes or so in my house. And if I didn't answer immediately, uh, they would send someone running to check. So, um, I continued to be checked like this for several months. Um, and then, then we ran away to the mountain. Um, so yeah. What do you mean you ran away to the mountain? Well, like earlier, I started to tell you about when we left Tripoli because the situation was getting too violent and oh. too bad and resources. And then we left to, to the mountain. Okay. So, but that's with your husband though, that you ran. Yeah. You with my husband. No, no. Yeah. This it, was to escape the, the, some uh, battles that Tripoli. are in Tripoli. Yes. Right. Yeah. In Tripoli. So I just, I, because I kind of had gone over my trying to run away with my kids. So I went back to that. And now I guess we're back to leaving Tripoli to get back to the mountain um, because it was uh, already liberated the mountain, most of the mountain from Gaddafi's troops. Were you still in um, Libya when Gaddafi was killed? When he was killed? Uh, no, I believe I was already gone. Um, I think I was already gone when he was killed, but I mean, he was already he had already ran away and I was still there. Um, but there was still a lot of fighting in Tripoli. So he, he was out of the country, but the fighting was still, was still happening. Can I ask you, how was the relationship through? Oh no, I was still there when he was 
when he died. I guess I was still there when he died, but I left just a few months after he was killed. Like a few weeks, a few months. Can I ask you, how was your relationship with your husband in general throughout this whole whole time? Were the time you, that we spent in Libya. Yeah, were you friendly? Did you feel uh, antagonism towards him? Did you... Okay. Uh, I'm not sure how to even ask this, but... Were, were you were you just in a constant state of hate towards him? What what, what was the relationship uh, like? Pretty much. I mean, for me, as soon as we got to Libya and he told me the girls weren't coming out. And OK, I we had been struggling to make the marriage work before, but it it had been a while that we weren't very happy. So I was, you know, already having a certain number of frustrations accumulated. And then I get there and he tells me this. So, yeah, for me, I would say that mostly my time in Libya was spent in a mixture of hating him, fearing him, and being very angry at him and 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 the desire for revenge, I would say. Um, for him, I guess his feelings um, towards me varied a lot in the time that we spent in Libya. We, at first, um, when I was pretending even to my family, that I was happy there and we were going to try to live there for, for a while. I was trying my best to be practicing again and to, 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 to show him that I was trying to be more believing and more practicing. So I think at that time, and I also delved back into my Islamic studies at that point, um, for specific reasons, I was actually, <laughs> I, I started to study family law in uh, Sharia, like uh, fiqh, in the family law in Islam, I started to study that very deeply trying, thinking that I, sh I could show him that Islamically what he was doing was wrong. Um, unfortunately for me, I found that what he was doing was not only correct, but also lenient. He, he was more magnanimous to me than, than was necessary. Um, you know, he didn't have to try to save me for myself. He could have just kept the kids and threw me immediately out of Libya. Uh, as I had spent time in Canada moving away from Islam, um, uh, after my mother's death and before we came to Libya and I was talking about like being just nominal Muslims, right? Putting my daughters into dancing classes and all this, uh, most of this could be understood as my leaving the religion. And once I leave the religion, my husband owes nothing to me with regards to the kids. I deserve Islamically if I leave the religion publicly, uh, like visually, visibly. I, people can notice that I'm taking distance from the religion. Um, it's either death or exile. In, in an Islamic state, like in Islamically speaking. So my husband did not have, you know, he, he didn't try, he, he didn't have to try to keep me with my kids and to change my mind so that I could stay with my kids. Uh, that was unnecessary. Actually, probably it's a sin that he committed there. He should have just taken the kids away from me immediately. So um, unfortunately for me, my in-depth uh, study of Islamic family law did not help me much. Um, so I would say that at the beginning, probably he had a sense of happiness and pride. 
to see me trying to get back within the fold of Islam and to study so much and to continue on my learning Quran and memorization and recitation and all that. So I think at first he was probably um, happy. Then I told my, from the time that I told my family on the phone and I obtained custody of the kids, when he came back, he was probably puzzled. I was still lying to him and I was still attempting to appear practicing, but I'm sure that he could feel my anger and my irritation sometimes. Like I, I feel fairly certain that he could. From the point that I tried to run away with my kids in Libya, there was no pretense after this anymore. So then life became like hell between us. We were always angry together, like to, to each other, with each other, always angry always talking in bitterness and resentment and anger. Um, I, I, I wanted to throw up every time he touched me. It's like I couldn't, I didn't want him to look at me or touch me or, or even talk to me. So every time I had to deal with this on a daily basis, and it was all of this on a daily basis regardless, I had to, to pretend to, to, to take it and what, be happy, like it, have fun, have pleasure. Um, so there was a lot of tension by that point, a lot of tension, um, a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness and resentment, definitely. So the, the, the relationship was strained, very, very, very strained. At what point did you leave Libya? Um, before the, the war had started in Libya, I mean, I was already extremely unhappy in Libya, but at least, you know, I had a job, there were things to do and, and we visited family a lot and whatnot. Um, also one of the things giving me hope was that my father was supposed to come and stay with us for several months. Actually, my father wanted to sell everything in Canada and move with us in Libya as long as I would stay there. But anyways... Bottom line is he was supposed to come and visit us. But because of the war and the uprisings, the war, the airport being closed in Tripoli, um, <clears throat> he couldn't come anymore. And by that time, like I had already tried to run away with the kids. I, I, was, I was deeply depressed and unhappy. And I knew my father, there was no way he was going to be able to come. So I was sad and depressed and upset and angry and bitter, as I was saying earlier. So my husband eventually, just out of the blue like that, um, started to, how could I say, started to try to convince me to travel to Canada for a few weeks or a few months without the girls, of course, without the girls, uh, to travel to Canada so I could rest and take a break of Libya and meet with my family and, and maybe get happier. And what he said is, when you'll come back in uh, Libya, you'll be happier. I couldn't understand why he wanted me to travel. I'm like, you've been keeping my passport. As far as I thought, like I, as far as I'm concerned, I thought you wouldn't even let me out of Libya at all. And now you're pushing me to travel? I, I just don't get it. Also, he does not believe in women. Like he, he's Muslim. Islam does not allow a woman to travel by herself for over 80 kilometers, a distance of 80 kilometers. I was like, you're going to let me travel for two days to get back to Canada. I just don't get it. 
I couldn't get it. So I asked him, why? Why do you want me to travel? And that's when he started serving me this little dish of this little plate of uh, you're sad and depressed. And because of it, we are all sad and depressed in the house, even the girls. Um, if you were to just travel for a few weeks or a few months in Canada, get a break from Libya, you know, recharge a little bit while you're there, then you'll come back and you, you'll be happier or at least less angry and less depressed. And we will all be happier because of it. Um, Obviously, you wouldn't be able to travel with the girls. No, absolutely not. So he kept telling me this over and over again every day for several weeks, a few months. And I I got more and more puzzled. I kept asking him, like, and I told him eventually, point blank. I'm like, okay, by now, after 10 years of marriage with you, I know for a fact that I know nothing about you. Nothing. Almost 11 years of marriage with you was a lie. The fact that you could do what you did to bring the girls to Libya and keep them here shows me that our entire marriage was a lie. The only one thing I know for sure about you that I know to be certain about you is that you lie to get what you want. That is the only thing I know with certainty. You lie. You don't mind lying and you lie to any level and any extent to get what you want. So I told him, like, I, I also what you've shown me through the years is that there's always an, an agenda behind. There's always an idea. You, you never just say, we can't, I can't take what you say at face value. You say something, but you mean something else. And I know it now. So what is it that you have now? You want me to travel. Why? What's the agenda? What's behind traveling in your head? And he kept just telling me, no, no, you're just miserable. And I'm. I, this is really tiring for me. I'm tired of it. The girls are getting depressed also in it. It's true. The girls were, by then, they were quite unhappy um, and depressed. And I, I can't, I totally understand. I mean, the situation in Libya was far from ideal. We were lacking from everything, lacking electricity, certain foods. We couldn't go out anymore. The, the girls weren't going to school anymore. They were basically trapped inside with no electricity. In Libya. So I, I could see why they would be miserable. Also, I think they were listening to me and their dad talk and they were internalizing some of this. So, you know, there's a day that my dad, my, my daughter asked, my eldest daughter asked something to her dad to do something, permission to do something. And he told her no. And she said, it's because I'm a girl, right? If I was a boy, I could do it. And she was five, maybe when she told him that or six. It broke my heart. Um, so we were all unhappy. It was true, but still I, I should have, you know, by then I should have known to listen to myself. So I, I let him convince me at some point, uh, that traveling to Canada for, uh, like a month or two would be a good idea so that I could recharge psychologically and emotionally and then go back to Libya for another stretch and, you know, manage it. Um, so we, I, I pack my stuff, uh, we drive the girls to my sister-in-law so she'll keep them because of course the, the, uh, the airport in Libya is closed and, uh, in Tripoli it's completely closed off. So we have to drive to Tunisia, the airport in Tunis to take the plane to Canada. And obviously my husband's not going to bring my kids even just in Tunis, right? 
Um, so especially such a short time after I tried to run away with them. So he, he takes me, we drive, um, we get to the airport, uh, not the airport, the border between Tunisia and Libya. And this is what I was, you know, um, explaining a bit earlier. The, the security is like nothing I've ever seen before. So you're in Libya. There's one layer of Libyan security, people with guns. You pass that. There's another layer of people with guns. You pass that. After you've passed that, as far as I could tell, you're in no man's land. It's no longer Libya, but it's not really Tunisia yet. And then you've got like two more layers of Tunisians with guns to go through before you get inside Tunisia. So it's like at least four walls of human walls of people with guns that you got across in order, or so it was at that point, um, between Tunisia and Libya. And so we, we were not even inside Tunisia. We were just barely outside of Libya not even inside Tunisia yet. And my husband, basically, the, the, we were waiting in the car in a lineup, stops the car, takes my phone, uh, deletes all my pictures that I, I took in a few years in Libya. Um, also deletes, I mean, many things from my, my phone, gives it back to me and tells me that he knows. He knows I have custody of the kids. He knows I tried to change their names, get passports. He knows all that. So now if I want to come back to Libya, I have to go to court in Canada and, and give him the custody of the kids. Complete so custody. I, complete custody. So that I don't have any legal rights over my, country, my, my daughters in any country of the world. Um, so obviously when he told me this, I started freaking out in the car again. Um, made it home to Canada. Took me a while to decide on that one. Um, I did try a few more legal things here. I got the same lawyer again. We tried to see if the Canadian embassy, Canadian government could do anything at all to, to, to get the girls out. There's nothing they could do. So basically, I just had to make the decision. Do I give him custody of the kids or do I and go back or do I keep the custody of the kids and I stay here? But just to be clear of like well, the, the situation. So you obtained total custody while you're in Libya over your girls in Canada via yes. via Skype with with a yes with government the, the judge. with a judge there correct yeah with a judge and the, then the, uh -huh. no the judge uh, agreed to to do this unorthodox method of law <laughs> right. to take my uh, testimony through Skype um, in order to grant me the like to afford the or give me the custody of the girls. So he figures that out. And aside from the time you're trying to escape at the airport and he waits until you guys have crossed the border where you can't come into Libya again without his permission. Exactly. Deletes all the pictures and information you have or on uh, my phone on your phone. And your options are either give up all custody in Canada of your daughters and give it to him where you have no legal recourse over your daughters anymore, anywhere on the planet. And then you could come back to Libya. Yes. Where you could be with your girls, but you wouldn't have legal rights over your daughters in Libya because he has all of the rights there. And then you also wouldn't have any rights in Canada either or anywhere else. Yes. And then that's the only way you could come back to Libya or you stay in Canada and you have legal recourse over your daughters. You, you have sole custody of your daughters, but your daughters are not there. Yeah. 
So it's either keep your daughters legally in Canada, but you're not with them, or you have no custody anywhere in the world, but you could go back right. to Libya. Yes. So it, uh, it took me a few weeks, a few months to make the decision. And, mm -hmm. and in any case, my lawyer did tell me, you can't play with the law at will. You think that now you can just go to court and get cust give the custody of your daughters to your husband? I tell you, it's not that easy anymore. Now that you have the custody, there's a judge somewhere that found that there was solid grounds to give you custody of your daughters. Don't think it's that easy. You may not even succeed. So I talked to family, lawyers, friends, and I made the decision, I mean, to keep the custody of the kids, my legal custody, and to remain in Canada. Uh, and to not go back to Libya. Uh, that was in 2012. And since the, obviously since then you, you couldn't go back to Libya. No, since then I've seen them through the internet only. I have uh, spoken to them and seen them through the internet, but I have not held them in my arms since 2011. But without your custody of your kids if you tried to do that i mean you already convinced a, a judge once that the father wasn't fit and it seemed insane to try to convince a a judge that you're not fit and only the this man the in libya yeah the father yes. is fit um i i didn't i didn't feel even if it had been doable which many lawyers assure me that it's not Even if it had been doable, I think I would have taken this, like, I, I think, I still think I would have, at that point, six years ago, I would have ended up to the same decision, I believe. I, I, I spoke to foreign affairs again at that point. It seems like the only time that there is a success story of a woman succeeding to bring her kids back to Canada, it's because she had custody. So I figured it's my only chance, my only actual chance to maybe get them out of this hellhole eventually is because I have custody. So I, I didn't, I, I chose to not give him custody, to not go to court. I, I didn't even try. Like I chose to not try to go to court and give him custody. Six years later, I, I sometimes regret it. I can't lie. I don't know if you should regret it because... It... If you gave up custody, let's say hypothetically, although the the lawyers say that it's it it wouldn't have turned out the way you even would wanted or he would have wanted for to give him full custody, he could travel anywhere in the world then, and you're technically not legally. There's nothing uh, I uh, could do. You, there's, you're not the you're biologically the mother, but you have no legal recourse over your children no. at all. There's then, nothing you could do for them. You, no. could, you couldn't keep them in Canada. You wouldn't be able no. to be a, a legal guardian of theirs no. at all. No, yeah. not at all. Um, so it, it, in theory, I think it was still the good decision to make. It's just in practice. In practice, I, you know, was I wrong? Was I right? I don't know. I just don't have them with me. And that feels like hell. And you can't go back into Libya without his permission. No, he, he needs to do that. He needs to get me an entry visa. Yes. Yeah. Seems like the most impossible situation to be in, though. It feels pretty impossible at, at this very moment. Yeah, these days, I uh, it seems pretty impossible. Yes. Um, I guess 
they, you know, they say there's something about never giving up hope. You never know what might happen. Um, there is unrest everywhere in the Middle East now, and women are starting to speak up. They're tired. Uh, they're tired of being second-class citizen. citizens. You, you never know. You know, my daughters right now are 12 and 11. My eldest will will turn 13 in a few months, and my youngest just turned 11. Um, legal age in Libya is like something like 18. You never know. Things could change a lot in the next five, six years. Um, women could make a revolution in the Middle East and 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 get rights beyond their Islamic rights. Right? You never know. Uh, I have to I have to keep some sort of hope alive. Otherwise, uh, life seems um, devoid of a purpose at this point. <laughs> um, it's been a long six years, very long six years. And it seems like you were very knowledgeable about the fact that this wasn't just a cultural aspect of native Libya. This was the 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 issues that you were facing through legality and the the, the limitations. It's all Islamic. It's all Islamic. It's all yeah. is, even even when it's cultural. In the case of the Middle East and North Africa, even when it's cultural, it's usually also Islamic. The, culture and Islam are so incredibly intertwined intertwined in the in the Middle East. You, there is a line that you can draw. Arabic music exists and Arabic belly dancing, even though Islam allows neither of these things. There is a culture outside of religion and religion outside of culture, but both of them, as far as it seems to me, are very intertwined. The the you know I like we were saying earlier macho seems to be a bit of a part of the Arab culture that definitely comes from Islam. Um, it, it's it's it, it's um, it's very difficult to draw the line between culture and religion at this point. And in any case, in any case, most of the Muslim countries do base their legal system at least somewhat on Islamic law. They try to at least, to some extent, base it on Islamic law. Um, and as far as I could study in 10 years of Islam, uh, th th that's all exactly it. Um, my husband's doing what he has to, and his country and his government, they are right, and every they're, they're all doing the right thing over there, as far as I can tell. Um, Islamically, they are correct. I'm not supposed to just travel by myself, and I'm not supposed to... To, to have custody of my kids when I denounce the religion and I take off my hijab and things like this. So, At what point during this story did you completely leave Islam as a believer? Um, I guess like 2007 is when I started and 2008 voicing my frustrations and my doubts, probably by 2009. It was done in my head, 2008 or 2009, I was done in my head. What about your girls? Um, they were very young. So obviously when my husband and I were together at home with them, we would talk to them about Islam. When I was with them, spending time alone with them, whether it was in Libya or in Canada, I would not teach them anything. Like I just would not talk about Islam at all, at all. Um, and in Libya, I'm not going to lie, after I tried to run away with them and it didn't, like I got caught, I did start to listen to music 
and movies again, and I did make the girls listen to it in secret. Um, did you tell them they had to hide that fact and not talk about it? Yes. Yes. Did they ask why? Not really. They knew. They knew. Mm-hmm. They already knew, even very young. Like they knew. They they didn't ask me. They they would tell me, "I know, Baba. He can't know this. Like Baba should not know that we watched a movie today." So like they they knew that Baba would get very angry if we listen to music and watch TV. So they they would always be very cautious about not and 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 you know Baba didn't um, have he he. If he found out that we were watching movies together, he would punish them as well as me. So possibly I should have not shown them what I would, you know, I I should have watched TV in secret myself and not tell them. But they were also bored and unhappy in Libya. Like they came from Canada where we used to go to swim um, at interior pools, inside pools in the winter all the time. In the summer, I would bring bring them to neighborhood parks, right? Neighborhood um, parks with like play structures and all this. Um, they, they, they were very free in Canada. They spent a lot of time outside playing. Now we get to Libya, there's no parks anywhere, no playgrounds for kids, certainly no pools for public swimming. Um, it's it's like they were also trapped at home. And in Canada, they did watch a little bit of TV when they were younger. So now in Libya, there was nothing to do, nothing at all. They couldn't do anything. So they were bored and, and they also had a hard time to adapt. You know, we say kids are very adaptable. Yeah, well, you know what? They are. But the the the, the transition from Canada to Libya, my eldest daughter was a little over three and she started to pee, not even, I can't say pee in her bed at night. In in in, in the middle of the day, she would just um, uh, spread her legs on the ground and, and pee on the ground. She started peeing on the floors. Uh, I, I'm not even going to say again, she never peed on floors. She peed in diapers and then she went to the bathroom by herself. Um, she started to just pee on the floor and she would like basically... Just stand up, not squatting, stand up like legs spread, shoulder width, and watch it happening. And then she would just look at me and her dad like, huh, I just peed on the floor. My oldest daughter lost a lot, a massive amount of hair. And it took a a full two years before it started to grow again. They did not adapt as easily as, as you'd think they would. I know some of this is my fault um, because I was, I was so unhappy there and I didn't try to hide it as much as I should. Um, some of this is just Libya's fault also, and my husband's fault. They went from a happy, well, somewhat of a happy and, and free life in Canada with a lot of activities to being trapped inside the house all the time in Libya. And being girls, they even it affected them at five years old. A five-year-old boy can run to the neighbor by himself, not a five-year-old girl. So, you know, the difference in gender started to affect them already at that age. So um, I, I, I realized as a mother, like it wasn't the best idea to make them lie to their dads, but I still think they were happier that way to watching movies and lying to their dad. Uh, they seemed a little happier at that point. How did your family react when you got back to, to Canada? 
I mean, what turned out to be a pretty severe trauma for me turned out to be a trauma for them, for most of them too. Something of a trauma, not, uh, you know, like it, it was, it was a hard time. Uh, they they just did the best they they could to support me and love me and spend time with me, not let me alone. Uh, they tried to give me the best advice they could when I asked them for, but mostly they would just tell me, you have to figure out what you think is the best and we will just support you whatever you decide. And this has always been my family's behavior. Whether you make a good or a bad decision, we will love you no matter what and, and support you in that decision. So that's just what they did when I came back. And how's your time been since you've been in Canada? I imagine it's been hell. It's been long. It's been very long. Uh, it's six years that, you know, three years in Libya felt like 20 years and six years in Canada, they're feeling like 15 years now. Um, it, it's been long. It's It's been hell. Um you like people can't imagine how it is to have children and spend years with them and love them and then not have them anymore. Uh, that in itself is hell. Um, I never sleep really, really well. I did go through PTSD. I don't sleep very well, generally speaking. Um, I I go like I live with a really high amount of stress on a daily basis. And then furthermore, when I came back here, if I could have at least have had peace, let's say from Islam, but do you think it's the case in Canada? It's there every day in my face and in my ears and in my in my head, every day on the radio, on the news, in the newspaper, government is talking about it, schools are talking about it. It's, there's Muslims uh, with big beards and, and children wearing hijab everywhere in Canada. I mean, my first neighbors right here, they're practicing Muslim and the woman wears hijab and her five, six-year-old daughter wears it occasionally, not all the time, but I mean, occasionally she'll come out with a little abaya and a little hijab. And she's like six years old, so it's it's shoved uh, in my face everywhere. So that's one thing that that I realized this is just today's world, multicultural world. It's always, Islam is always going to be in my face from now until the day I die. At this point, there's no running from it. I get that. Um, what I didn't expect was that I was not going to be able to speak at all Uh either about my stories about my time in islam about the studies that i've i you know i've my studies in islam that's what i didn't expect uh muslims and never muslims alike will jump on you um and accuse you of racism and xenophobia and islamophobia and will try hard to destroy all your reputation and uh, gets you fired from your work. So basically what I found is whenever I'm trying to talk, people are just basically telling me that I'm racist and telling me to shut up. Or sometimes, interestingly enough, telling me that I am too emotional to make the difference between my husband, who, according to them, is a bad man, and Islam, which is a beautiful, beautiful uh, religious philosophy or, or religious ideology. Um, Do you get this from Muslims or also non-Muslims? 
non-Muslims. I get this from non-Muslims even more than from Muslims. Never Muslim Canadians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, regular never Muslims, like people who were never Muslims. So they're basically telling me, you think that, you know, you, you, you're too emotional. Actually, it's not Islam which is at fault. It's your husband. Your husband was a bad man and a very bad Muslim. And this is why this is happening to you. And I'm like, actually, he's not a mo like people. He's not a monster. He's not a bad man. He's a very good Muslim. That's all there is to it. That's all I saw. Like, as I said, he didn't even have to give me a chance to try to save me from myself and, and bring me back to the fold of Islam. He should have just found a way to kept, keep the kids and throw me out. And that's it. Like when he managed to get us into Libya, he should have just kept the kids and threw me out of Libya immediately because I had already taken off hijab and I had already um, doubted the religion. I hadn't officially told him I was an atheist, but my, my speech was already enough that Islamically, he could have just kept the kids away from me. He didn't have to do what he did. That makes him not a monster. It, it makes him a very good man fucked up by Islam. That's what it makes him. It, he's, you know, he, he's, um, they're good people imprisoned by an ideology. So my husband is not a bad man. He's a, a good Muslim, a very, very good Muslim. So people here have been telling me that I'm too emotional, I guess, to make the difference uh, between my husband's behavior and Islam or my husband's belief. And I, I'm not sure. So I, I keep asking them, so what? I'm too emotional to remember what I've studied for 10 years in Islam or I'm too emotional to know my experience in Libya or my experience in Islam. I'm not sure. So it's been heavy and difficult in that sense since I've been back. Would you say if it wasn't for Islam, your husband would have been a good person in your eyes? Uh, most likely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In, in my husband's case, his fundamentalism and his, he was, he is not naturally a very extreme person. He would always like to find the middle of everything and the balance in everything. He's like, you know, uh, he, he, so no, definitely far from perfect by no stretch of the imagination, a perfect man. But I think he would have been normal. Islam brought all his extremism and his fundamentalism to him. Actually, he's only ever fundamental about Islam. He's not extreme about anything else in his life than Islam. Do, do you still communicate with him? Uh, I do. I, spoke to, I speak to my, da my daughters uh, through the internet, through Skype usually. Uh, so in order to talk to them, I have to go through him. Um, but he doesn't talk to me a lot anymore. Uh, like I don't talk to him very often anymore. Sometimes like he'll just put the girls on the internet and that's it. So I'm still in contact with him, but less and less as the girls get bigger and he just puts them directly, you know, by now, I guess they can connect themselves to the internet. So even once in a while, when he's not there, I get to talk to them when he's not at home. Do people in Canada show interest in your story, whether they be Muslim or non-Muslim, just friends or just people around you who you've ever had the opportunity to tell the story to? Does it 
does it interest them? Do you think it it, it it educates them in some way or do you see feel like they reject the story? Um yes and no. I I it depends who. It depends who. Um the people closest around me they will take everything I say for an absolute truth. So they they don't, you know, sometimes I'm like, well, go look, I want to show you the proof of what I'm telling you. And they're like, I don't need proof. You just said it. Yeah, but that doesn't work in a debate outside. You have to always verify for yourself. So the people who love me most, I think they just, they, they've given me a lot of support and also they want to be educated. So they they do take what I say very seriously. At large, People are interested in my story in as much as it fits their, the narrative that they're trying to push. If for some reason it does not fit in their narrative, then no, they're not interested. They don't want to know. They don't want to hear and they get angry with me. Um, so I found that at this point, most white, not, never Muslim people are not very interested in my story because the narratives that they're trying to push um, is, is that that uh, multiculturalism is the greatest thing, you know, since what microwaves, um, and and that um, that Muslims are the best integrated people on the planet anywhere that they move to, and that Islam is the ultimately most beautiful and feminist religion on the face of the earth. So since that, what around me seems to be the main narrative at this point. Um, no, I have not found a lot of openness or interest in my story. I tell them my husband keeps my kids in Libya and they tell me you're racist pretty much. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Um, so it's, uh, no, it's been difficult. I don't find a lot of interest towards this story, which is, you know, Lalo, six years later, um, now I'm talking about it in a, you know, hour-long podcast. So I think this has a lot to do with that. And but you want to engage more in activism now concerning this story? I think I, I, I think it needs to happen. Yes, I, I would like to. I think something needs to be done and awareness needs to be brought, um, especially for me as a woman. I just want to tell women out there, like, convert if you must. Get married to a Muslim man. Of course, if you're a Muslim, you're not going to want to marry a non-Muslim man. Convert if you must and get married to a Muslim man. But de-romanticize life and countries and governments in your head right now. Nothing about this is romantic. That, that nobody will give nobody will give you any help. As soon as you leave your own country to enter a majority a Muslim majority country, you will lose most, if not all, of your rights as a grown adult individual woman. You will lose that. Um, you you will lose this. Uh, you will lose all your legal rights, even to your children. In in the case of most of the Muslim majority country, um, and you 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 will lose you you know your freedom, um, your legal rights, the legal rights for your kids. You will lose your guardianship over your kids. You may not you may not realize this, or you may think it's never going to happen to you, but it happens to hundreds of of nor of Western women, hundreds. So, like, it's um, stay in Canada. If you're going to have kids 
in Islam, you convert and you marry a Muslim kid, stay in Canada. Don't ever, 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 ever step a toe in a country where you're going to lose your rights over your children. You're going to tell me that hundreds of people do mixed marriages and they travel all over the world and it works, but then there's hundreds that don't. And why would you even take that chance? Like, if you know that there's hundreds of marriages that did not work out and there's hundreds of women like me separated from their kids or kept prisoners in another country with their kids just so their husbands can limit their, his daughter's opportunities and choices in life, think about it deeply and hard if you really want to leave um, a country that, that affords you all your rights to go in another one where you will lose all of your rights as well as your, right, your rights as a parent. Think about it. Um, it may be the exception. It may be one out of, I don't know how many marriages that ends up like this. And maybe it's a much bigger exception than we think. At this point, there is no clear statistics on this. Um, so, you know, what proportion of... Uh, Like, you never know how many women are in my situation. We know that there's many, but we don't know how many. Why would you even take that chance? Why would you even take that chance with your kids? So, you know, like, I think awareness needs to be brought to people. Again, you had no idea that this happened. No one in my environment had any idea that this happened. I had no idea that this happened. Who knows that this happens? No one. Again, it doesn't fit the current narrative to bring awareness about this. So it seems that the people in my situation, we're going to have to take it in our own hands and bring awareness to others. So, you know, women out there who convert and love Islam feel like it's the most beautiful thing in, their, in your lives. Well, it may be, but it also just may be just a phase. And if it is, you'll have hell to pay. So be careful. Stay here. Stay in the West. Don't go East. Don't, like, don't go to the Middle East with your kids and husband, um, husbands. And, uh, you know, protect yourselves and protect your kids. A lot of um, feminists, Western feminists especially, who are perhaps very popular, have become kind of notorious for ignoring Islamic This? issues with women yes. in general, well, Muslim women in general, and the plight of women, Muslim women in general. Um, do you, do you, how has that been in your experience? I mean, yes, okay, the regular Canadian, but do you ever encounter female activists or feminists and they're more receptive to your story? I mean, independent feminists who consider themselves feminists, but they're not activists or they're not active in any or militant in any kind of way. Yeah, if they're feminists who have known me for a long time and love me, th there is an openness. But everyone else, the rest of feminists out there, no, no. No, no, no. Pe I, pe no people who don't know you. People who don't no, know you yeah. from Adams and they are yeah, activists no. and, th and things no, like that. No, th there's no there's no room for my story. There's no room for my my story. If I tell them my story, I'm basically an emotional dumbass who doesn't realize that my husband is not a real Muslim. He has nothing to do with Islam and he has nothing to do with being a Muslim. Um, so like, he's just like a, a monster probably caused by white patriarchy somehow. 
you know, brown Islam, I'm sure, has nothing to do with this. It's all white patriarchy that that made my monster into this and my husband into this Islamist. So no, feminists here, I I feel betrayed. I have, um, I feel betrayed to an extent where I can no longer. And I've had this uh, discussion with one of my closest friend, who is a social worker and a feminist, and she was like, I feel like I want to reappropriate the word feminist and the concept of feminism, well, she may be right, but as it stands now, I couldn't reappropriate it to myself. As it stands now, I feel betrayed by feminists and by LGBT communities, and I can't consider myself. Like, I, I will always be a feminist at heart and pro-LGBT at heart, but I will not join movements for these causes. Because they're not pro-you. Actually, they're telling me I'm racist. They're they're happy. They yeah. they would rather they would rather support my Islamist of a husband than my daughter my daughters who are prisoners of their dads and who will have every single one of their choices and opportunities cut from under them in the name of Islam. In the name of being appropriate, proper Muslims. So if feminists and LGBT would rather support him than me and my daughters, then no, I feel betrayed and I have nothing to, uh, so I can't even consider myself a feminist at this point just because of this. Um, and uh, and uh, though I will always support LGBT, you know, LGBTQ, I can't, I, I can't go to pride parades anymore. I haven't gone in, I've gone once in six years, the first year I was back and now I can't anymore. The, the 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 alliance between LGBT and I you know alliance between minorities I understand so that LGBT members want to support Muslims because of anti-Muslim bigotry I get I get it but what they should be saying is we support you because you are a victim of oppression but at the same time your religion is disgusting it sucks and I hate your holy book if they were honest feminists and LGBT, this is the discourse that they would have today. And that's not the discourse that they have. So no, it's, they, they, they would rather make sure that Islamists have enough room to grow in Canada, but are not willing to even just, in idea, give support to girls. And actually, girls like my daughters don't even exist, according to them. There is none. Don't you know, Lalo, that every single woman who wears hijab chose it? That's what and I hear. That's don't, what I hear don't, from don't, them. Don't, don't you know that every single Muslim woman like, loves the fact that her testimony counts as half of that of a man? And she absolutely raves about getting only half the testimony, the, the inheritance that her brother will give. Because, I mean, heck, her brother is going to take care of her. Now, tell me which woman in 2017 does not dream at night about being kept by her brothers? Like, which woman wants autonomy in 2017? No one. We're all happy to be taken care of by husbands and brothers and fathers and, and uncles. What do you say to these people when they tell you each one of those individual problems is a local, cultural issue, not related to the religion, or that it's the... It's long history of Western foreign policy in the region. What, what do you say when you encounter people who say this kind of thing to you? 
what is there to say but how about you go spend a few years immersing yourself in islam and by that i don't mean ask like ask at work your your hipster hijabi friend who maybe drinks wine and wears makeup and nail polish and wears a scarf on her head and don't go ask your coworker who talks to you about all the girlfriends that he has every weekends how about you you use your own judgment and you go and study the religion yourself for a few years and then come back and talk to me about it. You mentioned nail polish because that's haram. You're not allowed to use nail polish. As a yeah, no. Muslim no, woman, right? actually, yeah. it's not you're not allowed. There, there's the whole you're not allowed to wear makeup um, because it attracts male attention on you, on your face. So it's a form of adornment and you're not supposed to do it. Nail polish is like, it's twofold here. So it's an adornment. You can't show off in front of men, so you shouldn't wear nail polish. But also, um, I don't know if hipster female Muslims realize this, that um, you you have to make wudu before praying. In Islam, wudu, it's like ablutions. You have to wash up with water. When you wear nail polish, every single ablution that you make when you wear nail polish um, voids your ablution like nail polish voids your ablution and if your ablutions are void your prayer is void so that that muslim girl who has been having the same nail polish on her fingers for five days basically she has not prayed once in five days that that's what that means so it's it's worse than it's not allowed it actually voids your prayers in the end your prayers don't even count if you're doing them with nail polish on but a lot of people say that this is, you know, a lot of things you've talked about are very literalist reading of of Islam and that it's or it could be the right way to look at it as all metaphorical. The verses where it says you should beat your wife is just a metaphor for yeah, whatever. For you should love her and hug her. Should, yeah, yeah, love her and hug her, yeah, I guess. Yeah, right. Uh, well, you know, again, lo look at the Quran, look at the Prophet and the way that Muhammad lived his life. The Quran itself tells you to take it literally. The Quran itself claims to be the final word of God for all people for all times and to be the 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 the, the actual literal word of God. So I mean nothing is metaphorical in Islam. Nothing at all. Everything is literal. The Quran is literal, the Sunnah the everything is like I, I don't know where people find that things are meant to be taken metaphorically. There is nothing metaphorical about Islam. Everything is completely literal down to the letter. The only thing you could argue is context. So this, these verses in Quran, they are meant to be taken literally, taken literally. But is there maybe a context that was supposed to come with it? Uh, my answer to that is context in Islam always makes it worse. Like it just keeps getting worse. You keep adding layers of context to try to understand. And what what seemed bad to begin with, after three layers of context, just seems vile. Like vile and horrible. So you go from, from bad to worst and from ouch to disgusting. So... I mean, again, nothing is meant to, as far as my studies have shown me that everything was literal in Islam, nothing is an analogy or a metaphor. Everything is 
literal, meant to be taken literally, and context makes it worse, almost systematically. Yeah, that's been my experience. Every time I've seen somebody bring up a Quran verse that's supposed to be in, out of uh, context, a, an you... example, an example of a peaceful uh, verse. It, it, I mean, it, they, Muslims are often the first ones to scream out of context, out of context. But the more context you give to any verse, it only gets worse. And the more context you give always makes it worse. It's always there's some violence or some hateful yes. thing. I mean, almost every verse you'll you could bring up in the Quran when they're brought up, especially the, or the Hadith, especially the Hadith, and you just add more context to it, you're going to find some verses alongside of it talking about the infidels burning in hell or that you should yeah, attack yeah. them or imprison them. or And, and, and yeah. like uh, punish people who commit crimes. So like fornication, like sex out of marriage, not even adultery, not cheating, literally like I've never been married, but I'll sleep with my little boyfriend. So it, it, you're supposed to whip, lash, 100 lashes for the fornicators. It says in the Quran, I believe it's maybe Surat An-Nur, which is, it's interesting. They call it um, revelation of the lights, like the Surah of the lights, chapter of lights. And they don't mean like a light bulb, light bulb. They mean like illumination, right? Kind of like the enlightenment. It's the, the Surah, the chapter of enlightenment. So this chapter uh, basically tells people to gather around and watch the punishment and to not feel basically sympathy and compassion in their hearts for the people who are being punished. Uh, it doesn't even encourage the slightest form of empathy. So um, no, context always makes it worse. If you take a violent verse in the Quran and you add context to it, it just gets more violent. If you take a pretty verse, a peaceful verse, it will turn violent after you put a few layers of context into it. So what's beautiful turns out bad. So what do you think about the bad stuff in the Quran? It turns out like seriously vile, absolutely vile. If you keep adding layers of context. So eventually you just got to quit it and say, okay, I'm done with this. Well, I don't want to make this podcast too long. I really do appreciate <laughs> you, you telling me your story. Um, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to have you back anytime, Stephanie. Um, if anybody wants to follow Stephanie Tessier, uh on social media, I'll, I'll add links in the description. Is there anything last you'd like to add to, to, to this podcast? Um, you know, not that I can think of. Um, for all the non-Muslims who are listening to your podcast um, out there, if you know, if you're any one of of you listeners, very strongly left leaning and like, you know, pro Trudeau type of thing, just open your minds and listen, listen to what ex-Muslims have to tell you. They do have to bring you another side of Islam that you haven't heard because the media is very, very, to me anyways, in Canada, the media is very dominated by pro-Islam. So, uh, you know what, like, listen to what ex-Muslims are trying to say, the message they're trying to send out. It's actually important. And you'd probably gain a lot from listening to it. Well, I gained a lot from listening to you. And I mean, I'm sorry to end this like abruptly, it feels like, because just, I'm sure we could talk for like five hours or, or so. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, um, but you're, I mean, I'll, I'm sure I'll have you on a, again to talk more. I have a million other questions I'd like to ask you and talk to you about. But this has been very educational and very sad and moving. But I'm I'm glad to 
participate in getting your story out there. And uh, again, uh, thank you, Stephanie, for being on. Um, thank you so much, Lalo. It's been uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.